Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. What do we say? On Friday night, as I'm sure you know by now, a wave of violence swept through Paris, leaving carnage and destruction and death in its wake. People were utterly unprepared. Ruthless, trained gunmen walked into restaurants and theatres and opened fire on civilians who were just out for a pleasant night of dinner and drinks and music. Those same gunmen were wearing suicide vests and they were prepared to blow themselves up to avoid capture. The severed fingertip was found uh, this morning, analysed, and they've discovered that it was a French citizen who had been radicalised and convinced that this was the way he should respond to his own country. It was cold-blooded murder calculated to cause chaos. Meanwhile, on another television channel, across this side of the English Channel, the annual fundraising event, Children in Need, was unfolding. This program is a British institution, if you're not familiar with it, and it has raised tens of millions of pounds in the name of charity. It does a great deal of good. But um, I realized last night that there's a downside to television. We become desensitized. We're so familiar with scenes of tragedy that they no longer impact us. Things that ought to trouble us deeply just sort of slide off like water off a duck's back, but not for children. Uh, Last night, my 12-year-old daughter came downstairs sobbing because she'd seen the story of a child who is a 15-year-old and lost her one parent to cancer a few years ago and is soon to lose the second one. Now, have you become accustomed to such things? Friday night was a wake-up call to France and the rest of us in comfortable Western Europe. The violence and turmoil that shake so much of our world are not far away. They're on our doorstep. We have got to stop amusing ourselves to death and face up to reality. Now, of course, this kind of thing has always been with us. It's just usually it's further away. If you know anything about Nigeria and the Boko Haram, you will know just how cruel and savage people can be. But we've got used to thinking that it just doesn't happen here. What do we say? This is a picture of a good friend of mine. He's a church planter in Paris called Philip Moore. He's a Northern Irish he was a French teacher, and he felt the call to go to France and spend his life building churches. Uh, he's now the director of Acts 29 Europe, which is a church planting network that we're part of. And he posted this. This is his new Facebook picture. <coughs> Philip staring uh, at the French flag. And our prayers are with him and the others there today. Thank you for praying for them, Mike. What do we say? E.M. Forster was one of the great 20th century English novelists. He fell in love with India, and he became a great admirer of Eastern religions. He found the mysticism of the Hindu faith more compelling than the Christianity that he'd known growing up, and he dismissed Christianity as poor, talkative little Christianity in the face of the great silence of Hinduism. Now, it's not my purpose here today to be talkative, I don't intend to serve up a tidy sermon full of thoughts and ideas and neat illustrations. This is a day to ask the living God to speak to us, isn't it? We need to hear his voice. Without it, we are lost. 
What do we say? We're here with many questions. Why does God let such things happen? Is he really loving? If he is, then is he strong? Couldn't he stop them happening? Where is he? Is he going to intervene? David Cameron said on Friday night that our thoughts and prayers are with the French people, and that is as it should be. But what are we actually saying in those prayers? Listen up, we're not playing at church here, Grace Church. We don't gather as a mild diversion on a Sunday morning because we can't think of anything better to do. This afternoon, as you've heard, we have members of our church have a meeting for vision and prayer, and we're not meeting like the members of the Crown Green Bowling Club or the Mother's Union to have our say, eat some cake, and hear our voice on the committee. We are here because the only hope for a broken world is Jesus Christ, and we are his people. Amen? The prophet Isaiah spoke to a situation that was very similar to ours in some ways. His nation had enjoyed a long period of prosperity and peace. They got into bad habits, self-centered living, ignoring the needs and the pain of the poor. Their worship of God had become thin and superficial and hypocritical. It had nothing in it that was from the heart. Then King Uzziah died, and people began to wake up and realize that the world was not as safe as they thought. They were attacked by two of their neighboring nations, small countries, as we heard a couple of weeks ago from Jez, with the greater threat looming behind of the Assyrian superpower, which was over in the east, which were were like the fascists of the ancient world. So this southern kingdom of Judah was brutalized and traumatized, and Isaiah spoke to them in that situation. And so his message is one that we need to hear. It gives us the Bible's answer to this world. It gives us the Bible's answer to this, these questions that we have. Now, it's not what we might expect. It may not be what we want to hear, but this is the word of God. And by the way, this is not just Isaiah's perspective. Uh, Ray Ortland is a pastor and a a fine biblical scholar. Ray Ortland says this passage, chapter 11 that Rosie just read, is actually what the Bible is all about. This one passage, it's all here. You've reached the core here. You've reached the heart, the essence. The burning core of the biblical revelation is right here. Isaiah's answer to national crisis and to threats of violence is this. There will be a new kind of king... And there will be a new kind of world. There will be a new kind of king and a new kind of world. New kind of king. Look at verse 1 with me. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, notice here that God's solution is a king. It's based on a king rather than a parliamentary democracy. You're probably thinking, well... I didn't see the word king there. And you're quite right. It isn't there. But original readers knew exactly what Isaiah was talking about when he talked about Jesse. Because Jesse was the father of the great king David. David. That was a name to conjure with. David was the, 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 the kind of the founder of the nation. He was the, the, the epitome of kingliness. And God had promised, God had kind of telescoped down his promises to the world, to Israel, and to David in a key chapter of the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Get your highlighter pen and just color it in. 2 Samuel 7 is one of those purple passages where God promises that he will 
establish peace and justice in the world through a descendant of David. So all eyes are on David's line. All the hopes rest on David's line. But so far they have failed miserably. They failed to trust God. They failed to fear him. Now fear, fear, you read in the passage, fear of the Lord. It, it means deep respect, reverence, awe, and trust. Fearing the Lord means you're prepared to put everything into following him and trusting him. And they failed to do that. And so David's line led badly. They failed to give justice to the poor. They turned to false gods. They sought worldly solutions like an alliance with the Assyrians, the fascists of the ancient world. And so these descendants of David have really blown it. And as a result, the proud and arrogant successors of David and the proud and arrogant people that they led will be cut down like a forest hacked down by a chainsaw. Isaiah chapter 6 says so. And shockingly, God is even behind the superpower of Syria. Chapter 10 says that the Assyrians are God's instrument, or they're instrumental in judging his people. But Assyria itself will be cut down in their pride and self-serving arrogance. Look with me at the end of chapter 10. See, this is in verse 33. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. Lebanon was famous for its big forests. See, here's the proud Assyrians. They rule the world. They say, we can take anyone on. Bring it. They say, we can go to any nation and reach in like a, a poacher into a bird's nest and just take what we want. And they were used to going in, smashing and plundering. And God says, time, enough is enough. I will chop you down as well. Like a forest thickets going down before an axe. Now, what is this showing us? All human efforts, all human solutions, all human leadership without God is doomed to failure. In the Bible, the, the, the system of life that's organized without any reference to God is called the world. The world. The world is the system of life that's organized without reference to God. And worldly wisdom, without reference to God, always fails. But Isaiah holds out this hope. If God has made a promise, he will keep it. And we need a leader. He said the great king will come from David's line. And guess what? Isaiah says, just look out, will you, over that, that bleak landscape, all those chopped down trees, those stumps. Just look, look out there, see that maybe there's only a bit of tumbleweed blowing through. Hardly a bird is flying. And he says, you see that stump over there in the distance? There's a little green shoot coming up out of it. Out of the stump of Jesse will come a shoot. A shoot. One descendant of David will be different because he will have the spirit of the Lord. God's spirit will rest on him like no other. He will be full of God's spirit. He'll be so full of God's wisdom that he will always make wise choices. This person, have a look with me, will you? verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He's got understanding. 
He always makes wise choices. He also has power. He has the strength to do what is right. And he has that deep reverence, complete trust in God, the fear of the Lord. And what Isaiah is saying is God keeps his promises. The hopes of the nations, the answer to the problem, lies in this person, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Verse 3 continues, He won't judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Have you ever judged by what you saw with your eyes? Think about some of the worst decisions you have ever made. They were based on something looking good. Or that person who looked great and turned out to be not so great. We do tend to make decisions based on what we see, appearances. Not this king. He sees to the heart. He doesn't make those kind of decisions. He, in verse 4, he judges with righteousness. He judges the needy. With justice, he gives decisions for the poor of the earth. Now, let me just explain this, because in the, in the language, our language, judge, basically means to condemn. You know, the judge passes sentence. But in the Hebrew language, judge means set to rights, make things right, sort it out. He will judge the needy, he will see the needy and make things right for them. It's restorative justice. And with justice, he will give decisions for the poor. How often in in countries and cultures and societies, the rich get what they want, the rich pay less tax than everybody else, the rich get away with things. Not with this king. He will give decisions for the poor. Nobody is too insignificant and poor for him to overlook them. He has regard for them. He has the strength to make things happen. And what is he like? What's his character? When he's back at home, when he puts his feet up, what's the essence of him? Well, it says in verse 5, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Now, again, this is picture language. He's wearing a belt of righteousness. One of the scholars says it's a bit like your underwear. It's what you're really like underneath. When you get to the core of this king, he's not one thing in public and a different thing in private. He doesn't have a kind of public-private dichotomy. He's righteous all the way through, like a stick of rock. Cut him wherever you find him, and his righteous is running all the way down. He does what is right, and he is true. He has absolute integrity. You see what this is saying? This is God's answer to a broken world, is a new kind of king. God's word is, I will send a king to sort it out. A ruler, a leader, someone who knows what to do, has the power to make it happen, and has the interests of the most vulnerable and needy close to heart. Now, can such a king be trusted? Can you trust your life to him? By all means, he's got integrity down to his fingertips. And he will not do this by the wisdom of the world. His wisdom will look rather different. It's all based on God's wisdom. He doesn't judge by decisions that are made in the world around, but by the insight that God gives to him, the Spirit of the Lord. And that means that he will work in his own way, to his own timetable, and not by normal standards, human standards of wisdom. The solution to the world's problems will not be found in the marble corridors of power of Beijing and Washington and Brussels. The solution to the world's problems will not be found in a convention of the greatest thinkers and minds 
that humanity can produce. The solution needs to come from elsewhere. We've tried those things and we've exhausted them. This king will do it. We need him. Now, at this point in the story, the king might sound a bit like a kind of enlightened civil servant. You know, somebody who's kind of very clever and makes things happen. But verses 6 to 9 takes it to another level, doesn't it? Verses 6 to 9 says that he has the power to transform the whole of creation. What do you notice with these uh, pairings of of creatures? Verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Thought about this a bit last week, but it's worth coming back to it. This passage has inspired artists and thinkers for, for hundreds of years. What is going on in this vision of the future. There's a unification. There's a coming together of things that could not live together. The wolf, the most savage, dedicated, cruel hunter, with the lamb, the most feeble, weak, and defenseless creature. The leopard lying down with the goat. Now, the only time that usually happens is lunchtime for the leopard. And there's the little child doing ring-a-ring-a-roses roses with a calf and a lion. And everyone's happy. Now this is an image of unification, things being brought back together that formerly could not coexist. It's also an image, obviously, of safety. Where there used to be violence and cruelty and harm, there's now absolute safety. The great line from English poetry, Nature red in tooth and claw. You know, violence and, uh, and harm is, is wired into our world and our crea- in this creation down to the deepest level. What this is saying is that there will be a new world, a new kind of world where there will be safety, there will be unification, and there will be harmony. It's saying that creation can live. All creation will be able to live and rest and eat and play together and there will be no more harm. It speaks of a new kind of world. A very dramatic change, isn't it? From what we saw on Friday night. A very dramatic change from the, uh, the lives of people, children who are torn apart, children in need. So, how does this happen? How does this happen? Verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It happens through knowing the Lord. Now when I was in uh, college, they taught us in preaching class, never take a book into the uh, pulpit and don't especially don't take a big book and don't read out of books when you're preaching. So I'm going to break all the rules today and just read a quote from this great book. This is what uh, what you need to understand by the idea of knowing the Lord. The Hebrew language does not recognize any distinction between knowledge that is 
accumulated information, and knowledge that is personal acquaintance. Let's say that again. On the one hand, there's knowledge that's data, head knowledge. You've acquired it. You learned it. And on the other hand is knowledge that is personal acquaintance. You'll know somebody or something. For the Hebrews, all true knowledge is based on experience. Therefore, when the prophet speaks here about knowledge of the Lord, he's not speaking primarily of knowledge about the Lord, but of insight into reality that comes from a close, intimate relationship with him. You see what he's saying? Do you? He's not saying you need to learn a bunch of facts about the Bible and win the Bible trivia around in the pub quiz, and that's knowing the Lord. He says, when people know the Lord by personal and real experience, then they will change, and then this new kind of world can come into existence. It's not head knowledge. It's a knowledge, a personal knowledge, a deep, life-transforming knowledge. Knowing the king creates a new kind of world and starts to usher it in. So the question is, do you know such a king? Do you know such a king? Have you got personal experience of him? There's a great old Christmas carol that says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. And it has in it the line, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Hopes and fears of all the years. I met in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the town of Jesse, David's father. A humble place, poor place, not much going for it. Wouldn't have made, made much of a, a splash in the Lonely Planet Guide to Israel. And on this occasion, the child's parents were poor. They arrived late and there was no room for them except in a stable. So that was where their baby ended up being born, amongst the stink and the smell and the straw of animals. He was laid in a feeding trough. Now, you young mothers here, just imagine how many baby wipes it would take to get a feeding trough sanitized. I suspect that wasn't part of the birth plan. His parents were so poor, in fact, that they could only offer the, the poor man's offering at the temple two birds. But there was something else you should know about the parents of this baby. They descended from David. Now, true, by now, the monarchy had very little to show for itself. The country was ruled by the Romans. Most of the 12 tribes were gone without a trace. Those who remained were divided into sort of little fragmented groups. Some of them were compromisers who just wanted to uh, suck up to authority. Others were grafters who wanted to just get their head down and pretend nothing was happening. Some were zealots who, wanted to, who were kind of the religious fanatics of their day. Others were Pharisees who were moral crusaders trying to get everybody to live right. It was a pretty poor show, especially when it was compared to the golden years of David and Solomon. But that was all a very long time ago now. Now the nation was like a chopped-down forest. No grandeur, no splendor. And this was all 700 years after Isaiah wrote these words. But there was a green shoot. The child was born in Bethlehem, and he started to grow. And he amazed people by his wisdom, by his insight, and by his character. His answers that he gave in the temple to the religious experts, his humble wisdom, and his quiet authority. But he remained fairly obscure. He did not do what we would expect someone to do if they were trying to start a movement or save the world. His life was spent, for the most part, in small towns 
and villages. His trips to the capital, Jerusalem, were a PR disaster. He didn't know anyone on the inner circles of power. He was not a great networker. You might say he wasn't a political animal. He was a funny sort of king. And no sooner was his career getting off the ground, at the age of 33, than he was betrayed by a friend. He was tried without appeal. He was condemned without justice. He was led outside the city to be executed with two criminals. He was nailed to a wooden cross and strung out to die. The cross had two functions. The first was to kill you as slowly and painfully as possible. But the second was to shame you, to heap such public disgrace on you that no one would ever want to associate with you again. It was a fate worse than death, reserved for the lowest of the low. Yet Jesus had said that this would happen. Jesus had chosen the cross. Jesus had pledged himself to it, set his face to it, and pursued it with determination. He said he would die for his people's sins. He said he would die to take away their disgrace. He was so strong, yet he submitted himself in weakness to the powers. He was so wise, yet he took a path that looked foolish and crazy. And then, as he said, he rose from death on the third day to new life. It was attested by a wide range of eyewitnesses, and their eyes were popping out of their heads. And his resurrected body is God's promise of a new kind of world. His resurrected body is a God's promise of a new kind of world where there is no more decay and no more death and no more harm. He's the first fruits of a great harvest that will number millions and millions of people. And that's because the shoot that came up from the stump of Jesse is also the root. Have a look again at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Now I've read this hundreds of times over the years and I never realized until this week the difference between a shoot and a root. Duh. I'm not much of a gardener. We've got a stump in our front garden that we cut down because it was pushing the wall over. And uh, that stump will not give up. It keeps sending up shoots because the roots have gone down deep and the kids have to go and hack them down every few months. Now, how can the shoot of Jesse also be the root of Jesse? Think about it. The shoot is a descendant. He comes out of the stump there. But the roots come before. The roots are the origin. So the root of Jesse is the originator of Jesse, but the shoot comes out. In other words, how can this person be the shoot and the root? Answer, because he's human and divine. He's human, a human physical descendant of David, but he is also God in the flesh, the root of all of this, the one who started it, the originator. That's our king. Jesus Christ is God's answer to the problems and pain of this long-suffering world. That's what we say. If you want to know the answer to the problem of evil, there's a one-word definition. Jesus. 
So where does that leave us today as we approach the Lord's table and we remember his death uh, by taking these elements of of bread and wine? Where does that leave us? What does knowing that kind of king produce in us? It makes us into a new kind of people. A new kind of people. If you know this king, not just know about him, but know him by personal experience, he changes you because you can't go on being aggressive. You can't go on being self-promoting and seeking your own interests. You can't go on being greedy for your own personal gain when he gave so much. You can't go on constantly competing to try and be the best when he laid down his life. We serve a humble king. You can't go on being a kind of divisive, partisan person, falling out with everybody, gossiping, prone to take sides, wanting to split things up. This is the king who unifies. He brings all different kinds of people together. And he he commands us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. He commands his people to pursue peace. When you know this king, it makes you a new kind of person. It makes you into a worshipper. Nathaniel read these great words from chapter 12. In that day you will say, I praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. The anger was turned away at the cross of Jesus. The comfort that he holds out is comfort that comes from blood-stained hands. Surely God is my salvation. Yes, I couldn't save myself. God saved me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. So much of our aggression, so much of our anxiety, so much of our unhappiness just comes out of us being afraid. We're afraid because we're out of control of our lives and we don't know what's going to happen next. And we're afraid that we're going to be overlooked. We're afraid we're going to be a nobody. He says, I will trust in you and I won't be afraid. Be a worshipper. who give praise to God, shouting aloud, singing for joy. Because we know the king. Not just knowing about him. We know Jesus through personal experience. So, Christian friend here today, brothers and sisters, make sure you know him. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, I prayed a prayer some time ago and that made me a Christian and now I just go on living as I did before. You're in a new kind of world now where you walk with Jesus day by day. And if you don't, You go astray. Know him by personal experience. And knowing him, we know that he's trustworthy. We know that we can lean the weight of our lives on him. Think about that burden that you've been carrying around all week. Think about that thing that's heavy on your heart and mind. That thing that keeps you awake at night. That deep pit fear inside. Lay it down. Lay it down. He can take it. He can handle it. He's big enough. He's trustworthy enough. And he knows you. And as we do that, we wait for his return. Because we are in a veil of tears. And one where people commit all kinds of atrocities. And we wait for him to come, his second coming, when he will set things to rights, when the earth will really be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
So friends, this is why every day in your life matters. Because you know Jesus if you're a Christian. And listen, some of you here, you may be looking in. You're looking into the Christian faith. You've been sort of thinking about it for so long. It might be that today is the day that you stop fighting and come in and submit to the Prince of Peace and make him your king. Will you do that? And those of you here who are uh, part of our church, members and friends of the church, you know, we have got a wonderful opportunity here in this great city to be a show home. You know, when they're building a new estate, they get the land and the developer gets the, uh, the plans and they're going to build so many hundred new homes and they're going to have a park and a pharmacy and a school. And they start to build, but at the start, they only build a couple of houses and those are the show homes and they make them look really good because people can come in and see the show home and then they say, this is what the rest of it will be like. Do you want to buy in now? Do you want to buy in now? Now that's what the church is. It's a show home. The kingdom of God is coming. It's already here, but not fully. And what we are as a church is a show home, a place that people of all ages and stages of life, people who normally would have fallen out and not had anything to do with each other, people of all faiths and none can come and look around and see the way that we relate to each other and see that opposites have become united, that those who were previously at war have now been reconciled, that we work hard at peace and loving each other, that there's a depth and a strength and a, and a reality to this community that can't be found anywhere else. And they say, I want to I buy it. I want to be part of this because I want to be part of that future when the whole new world comes. A new kind of king, a new kind of world, and a new kind of people. Let's pray, shall we? And as we're praying, I, uh, pausing, let's, musicians, you want to come out and we'll uh, sing again in a moment. Just in the silence for a few, few moments, let's think about those things in life that are troubling you and that you've tried to carry yourself and commit that you will now lay them down on the shoulders of the King of Kings. Think about that person who you're at war with. You have not forgiven them. You're holding a grudge. And you should be at peace with them. And resolve now that you will reconcile. Think about that uh, habit of life that you've pursued in the last week or longer that is not pleasing to God and has estranged you from him. And resolve that you'll put it away. That you'll go out of here repentant and clean and new. And that you'll want to know the king. Let's pray. Lord, you promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be there. And that means that you're here now. Lord, you search the hearts and the secrets of every man, woman, and child, and you know us. You knew us before we were even born. You know how many days we all live. You hem us in behind and before. And yet you have set your love on us. You've decided to adopt us. 
Father, thank you for this great grace that you've lavished upon us that we should know Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came for sinners such as us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here now and you're working in our hearts. We pray that you'd bind us to you with cords of love and we pray that we would grow in our faith and our hope and our love and we pray that we would be a lighthouse, a community of light that beams out around South Manchester and the north of England and Britain and Europe and the world that we would bring glory to the great king until the day when his knowledge fills the earth as the waters fill the sea. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.